We're glad you're here this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 5. Continuing in our Gospel of John study. So a few years ago, I was given a copy of Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ, and read through it. And, and in that story, in that book, he begins the first chapter, and he, he talks about the importance of witnesses for court cases. You know, he says any, any responsible legal system is based on the validity of witnesses. And then he proceeds in that first chapter to give uh, a story and the importance of the witnesses for that story. He shares about Elijah Baptist and when he was convicted for murdering Sam Blue outside his grocery store in Chicago. And that conviction was based upon one testimony, one eyewitness, Leo Carter. Because he was such a credible witness, that was enough. And Elijah was sentenced to life in jail. Leo was credible because of his clean record and because while playing basketball with a friend right beside the store, he had seen it all. He was even more credible because the murderer had tracked him down and put a bullet in his head just as he did to the other witness. But Leo survived. Miraculously, he survived. And with terrible wounds and the bullet still in his skull, it was high drama as he's in the courtroom looking directly at Elijah Baptist and with a scarred face and a missing eye, raising his finger, pointing at him and slowly saying, that's the guy. He was a witness. And that was enough to secure this guilty verdict in this case. Witnesses are important. And what John is writing for us here this morning in this court case, as we'll see and unfold in John 5, witnesses are important. Jesus sets up the conflict in John chapter 5 and verse 1. We went through this last week, but let me bring you up to speed. You know, if you remember Jesus, or if you read, he comes to Jerusalem, he comes to the pool of Bethsaida, and he's in Jerusalem for the Feast of the Jews. And, and Jesus comes and does all this. And this all unfolds on a particular day, an important day for Jewish people on the Sabbath. And I said this last week, he could have done it the day before or the day after. There was no rush to heal this man. But Jesus chooses this day very specifically and very precisely to heal this man and the confrontation that would bring with the Jewish leaders. So he finds this man, just one, by the man of Bethsaida. And with this healing, with what transpires, brings about this courtroom scene. If you remember, Jesus approaches the man and asks if he wants to be healed. And, and then he does it by his own word. There's not a laser light show. There's not pyrotechnics. Just Jesus and his power to heal with his words. And then he commands this man to take his bed and to walk, leaving the pool and heading through the gate into the temple area. Jesus knew that this man would, by so doing this, rile up the Jewish leaders, walking right in front of them. They would have a fit. They would be angry, and they respond to Jesus. They respond to this man first. And Jesus did all of this to demonstrate to the Jews that he had authority. Later, Jesus finds the man in the temple and gives him a warning. I was thinking more about that this week, this warning that he gives Jesus warns this man to turn away from his sinful lifestyle. It's gracious and it's loving. It's a gracious thing for us to warn others of spiritual dangers and physical ones. Love takes this form. You know, so much of the time, though, as humans, we want to steer clear of this. We, we, 
We don't want to get involved in this action because we just want to keep our nose out of it. You know, we say it's none of my business, and so I don't want to say anything. And we miss the opportunity. But what if your kid runs out in the street? Do you warn them? Almost definitely. We we know what's going to happen. Well, why wouldn't you warn people from continuing in sin? It's good to warn people about the good and right judgment of God. And we'll see that in this chapter. To warn them that they have a judge and his name is Jesus. This is loving, folks. You know, in all this, you're not called to convict people, just so you know. That's not your job. God's job is to convict but we're called to warn people, to bring it out into attention what, is, what their trajectory is and what's happening. And that's what Jesus does here. So friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, I wanna warn you that there's much worse things than living a lifetime full of pain. If you're not in Christ, then you will stand before the right, the just judgment of Jesus Christ. And your only hope is coming to God through his son, repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ for salvation. Jesus is the only one who can forgive you of your sins. He's the only one that can give you new life. So if you're here this morning, you know that you sit in that. I, I warn you that don't continue in that path. And maybe you sit here this morning and you know other people. You know people that are not Christians. Being loving to them is warning them of what the future holds. You know, sometimes loving God brings conflict into our lives. You know, this is the example we see here in Jesus Christ. He, he warns the man and then he confronts the leaders. He's gonna unfold this courtroom scene for us. And so we see the crime. We saw that last week, the first 15 verses in John chapter five. This week, we're gonna talk about the decision to prosecute Jesus that happens, the trial of Jesus, and then how it turns from Jesus to the world, to the Jewish leaders. So if you have Bibles, turn me to John chapter five and follow with me as I read. I'm gonna read verses 16 through 47. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, it is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Verse 30, I can 
do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word in abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. And you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of God. Please join me in prayer. Father, we, we thank you for the opportunity that we have this morning to come together as the body of Christ. And I thank you for this passage of scripture, although difficult and sobering. But God, I ask that you would give us insight into your word this morning, understanding bring application to our hearts and to our lives. Help us to know and understand what it means here and help us to come away changed by the result of hearing your word preached and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. So this passage launches into the decision to prosecute Jesus. You know, the Jews are not happy here. They're, they're moving to to bring Jesus up on charges, so to say. And what Jesus has done, he's done serious things in their eyes. He's healed on the Sabbath. And not only that, he's, he's saying in verse 17 that I and the Father am one. He says, my Father is working until now and I'm working. And it brings such anger into the Jewish leaders because he's established right before them that I am God. So it's a Sabbath and he equates himself with God. And, and think of this monumental action that Jesus takes by healing this man on the Sabbath. On the human level, what Jesus does on this day, the Sabbath, and what he says about himself that he is God, cost him his life. Everything changes in this moment in the, in the Gospel of John. The curiosity that was there before now changes drastically as Jesus does what he does in John chapter 5. The Jews never forgive him. They pursue him to take him down. This is the first domino, in effect, that pushes the leaders to want to crucify Jesus Christ. Find it interesting to look at Jesus' words here in verse 17. He says, My father's working until now, and I'm working. Folks, God never stops working. He, he doesn't take the Sabbath off. God doesn't take a vacation. We need a vacation, but God doesn't need one. He continues to work. 
He saves, he heals, he brings people up and out of the depth of sin. He doesn't stop on the Sabbath. And, and the Jews would recognize this, agree with it, but what they have a problem with is the next statement. That even though God continues to work, he is saying, I and the Father am one. And in that moment, they're stirred to anger. And this launches into the meat of this passage here, the trial of Jesus, verses 19 through 40. You know, Jesus now launches into this trial and John is giving us his understanding of Jesus' defense of his deity. It shifts from a dialogue to a monologue. It's just Jesus talking and the leaders listening. So verse 19, Jesus said to them, truly, truly I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Jesus is saying he and the father are one. They're in perfect unity. They're in complete, perfect harmony. There's no conflict between the father and the son. And he's saying to these leaders, I am God. He's, he's explaining to these first century Jewish people that are monotheistic, okay? They have an incredibly strong view that there is one God. And Jesus is not denying that. He is not denying monotheism. He's not saying there's multiple. He says, there is one God and I am he. He's explaining that he and the Father are in this relationship and he and the Father are one God. And in verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he has himself doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Oh, what a powerful phrase this is, these these. Four words in my translation. I want you to underline this because this is the root of the chapter. For the father loves the son. The father loves the son. This is, this is where everything starts and then flourishes out here. It, it, it really identifies of all of Jesus' ministry and why he's here on earth. It's born out of the love the father has for the son. What an incredible thought this is that the father loves the son. I want you to notice it. I want you to underline it. I want you to repeat it and most importantly, I want you to do the same thing. The father loves the son, so should we. We should love the son. We should have the same response. Jesus is also explaining to them that he has authority in this. Because he and the father are one, that he is God, he has all authority. Verse 21, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus has all authority. has been given to him by the Father. I found it interesting in my study this week, in one commentary, they, they took you to Daniel chapter 7 to, to give fuller understanding and reference. So turn your Bibles to Jan Daniel chapter 7. Just a few pages earlier, page 744 in my Bible, if that helps. The reason I want you to turn, because I want you to see it in your Bibles, whether it's digital or real, I want you to see it. Look, look with me as I read Daniel 7. Look at verses 9 and following here. It says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Jump down to verse 13. 
And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. He, was, he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. It's interesting, Bob Pelch mentioned after the service, you know, the, the interesting he mentions languages. Imagine what heaven's gonna be like. Languages. I, someone, I was just mentioning it to Bob, you know, like what language are we gonna speak in heaven? And I heard one teacher said, you're gonna speak them all. Because you think maybe you have this supernatural ability to understand all, no, you're gonna have eternity to learn Mandarin and Canadian. That's an easy one. I think we're gonna learn them all. You may not understand the first hundred years you're there, but you're gonna have so much more left to learn them all. God knows them all, we'll learn them all, and we'll stand before the Son, the Son of Man. And in this passage in Daniel, he's saying he's been given authority. The Father has given the power of the judgment to the Son. And the Jewish leaders would know this passage from Daniel. They, had, they probably read it and studied it. And when Jesus comes right, be, right before them, they don't understand. You know, Daniel 7 was written hundreds of years before this, and it it's further proof of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. So we should not only just love the son because the father loves the son, we also need to honor the son. He continues there in, in John 5. Turn back to John 5. In verse 23, Jesus continues. He says that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. And Jesus is informing us that we do not honor the father unless we honor the Son. They're tied together. They cannot be separated. Folks, you cannot accept the Father and reject the Son. It's not possible. Jesus is emphatic for the Jewish leaders here, and it's for us today. If, you, if you're unsure where someone stands in a religion or a cult, and you're not sure where they land, ask them about Jesus. Because most reject this. Ask them, do they honor the Son? Because you cannot have a relationship with God if you reject Jesus Christ. It's not possible. For all those in other religions that deny the deity of Jesus Christ, who, fo who focus just on the Father, Jesus is saying here, they are lost and they've rejected the Son. They do not honor the Son. They do not understand God. But what happens here for those who honor the Son? For those who believe, look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Folks, when you believe, you have life. Real life. Eternal life. Anyone know something else? Eternal life doesn't start after your funeral. It starts now. Eternal life starts at conversion. It starts at that moment. You know, conversion is an interesting word, okay? To convert, it's something that means it's changed, it's transformed, it's no longer the same. That's what salvation does. You're no longer the same. You know, this is why we baptize people, okay? As a result of conversion. We celebrate this change. Next week, 
we have the opportunity to celebrate together as a brother in Christ publicly identifies himself with Jesus Christ. And he'll say publicly, I choose Jesus Christ. I follow him. And how does this happen? Because of conversion. Because of a change, a transformed life. He recognizes this and he believes. And he stands in front of everyone and says, I believe. We celebrate this. This is joyous. He doesn't do that to get saved. He does it because he is saved. That's what baptism is. So I'm gonna encourage you, if you haven't been baptized and you're a believer, you need to be baptized. It's following through in obedience what God's word says. There's still time. I have a whole week I can meet with you. I don't care if we have 70 up here, we'll do it. But it identifies, you're saying I am identifying myself with Jesus Christ. I believe in him. And we celebrate that because conversions happened. And if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. I want you to know you need this now. You need this life now. Because if you're not a Christian, you're here, you're dwelling in death. Look at verse 24. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. If you are not in Christ, your present state is death. Do you see the evidences of death in your life? You lack any recognition of God, who he is. You feel alienated. You lack any interest in other people that are outside of your own interests. You lack love, real selfless love. You're jealous and angry and frustrated and you can't see any hope outside of yourself. It's all because in that present state, if you're not a Christian, you live in the present state of death. Life is not supposed to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. You can come this morning to know God, God who made you for so much more. And you begin to know and love others in ways that you cannot imagine, right? I mean, can I get a response from believers this morning? Isn't that true? It's different. Life is different once you know Jesus Christ. You have new loves, you have new desires, you have new motives for life. And you wanna know why? Why is this all possible? Because of verse 24, you have crossed over from death to life. And as Christians, you've, you've, you have eternal life. You've passed. And there's a future yet to happen. And Jesus says something is happening right now. Look at verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father is life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. He says, an hour is coming. Something is going to happen in the future. But Jesus says, it's, it's now happening. It's right now. When the dead will hear the voice of God. Well, the future things are yet to happen. You know, if you, you look at verses 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, it says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. You know, it doesn't say here who, the, who gives the cry of command. There's a number of different viewpoints. It could be an angel, it could be God the Father, or it could be Jesus as he's coming. I mean, Jesus has the power to do this, right? Hebrews 1.3 says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So it seems it will be Jesus coming. It will be his voice. That's what I think. You know, we see it later in John 11 when Jesus stands outside of the tomb and his friend Lazarus is dead. And what brings him out? But the voice of Jesus Christ calling him out. So that's yet future, as he says. But yet Jesus says it's happening now. How? Where? Where is it happening now? Well, we just saw it. The Samaritan woman, right? And the Samaritan town, as they come and they recognize and they embrace Jesus. And it's happening today. You and me, we're saved. We were once dead in our trespasses and sins, and now we have life in his name. They have new life. You have new life because you've heard the word. Jesus says, those who hear will live. Folks, I want to encourage you, keep sharing the word. Keep preaching the word. Lord willing, we will continue to preach the gospel here in this pulpit until the day Jesus Christ comes back for us. The word will go forth. Romans 10, we know this passage, 10, 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they not never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And then verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Folks, in a, in a few minutes, maybe closer to 40 minutes, I don't know, you're gonna be dismissed. Don't laugh. (laughs) And you're going to be sent. Messengers of this glorious gospel. Leaving this place, time of worship, time of refreshment, but leaving to go to bear witness of who Christ is and what he's done in your life. You share the gospel and God does the rest. Now there's still... There are still many more in this world that need to cross from death to life. God gave Jesus the right to grant life and he's also given him the right to execute judgment. Look at verse 27. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus has been given the power to bring judgment. And when that hour has come, those that have died will come out of their tombs by the word of Christ and they will stand before him. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This doesn't mean, in this, in the, on the positive side, those that have done good, doesn't mean that, that they are somehow justified by their works or that God's on our side because of works. It means the reverse. If you, are, if you are justified by your faith, your faith will produce good works. Your faith gives you the ability to do good works, which brings evidence then of your salvation. It brings evidence of your faith. And folks, realize, and again, this morning, that you will be resurrected one day You'll be raised to life one day and you will stand before Jesus Christ. Everyone will stand before Jesus Christ and you will stand before him either as your friend 
or he will be your judge. I need to say this morning, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you need to make Jesus your friend. You do not want to stand before Jesus Christ that day only in your goodness. It will not go well for you. And if you think this morning, and I'm just a, I'm a good person, or I was a part of a Christian family, or I attended church once in a while, and, and look, Jeff, I'm sitting here, and you're talking for 40 minutes, so that must bring something. You know, I want you to go to a friend this morning, someone that this week, I want you to go to a friend, a close friend, someone that knows you really well, and I want you to ask them to tell you the truth about you. I'm serious here. Go to them and ask them to tell you things about yourself that is not good. And if they know you at all, they'll have plenty to say. And after they finish, imagine with me what God knows about you. Your friends on earth only see what you allow them to see. God knows all. God sees all. He knows you and he sees you when no one else does and he will judge you in those areas too. And on that day, you will want Jesus as your friend. You need to repent. You need to turn to Christ. And then we need to live for Christ. If we're saved, if we're Christians, we need to live for Christ and not ourselves. This is what Jesus does. Look at verse 30. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Who does Jesus live for? Not himself, but God who sent him. And Jesus, still in this trial, so to say, before these leaders, moves now to witnesses who support and bear truth about him. Verse 31, it says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And Jesus launches into these, this idea, there's two witnesses here that mentions about John the Baptist and God the Father. Both would know him well. And if you remember John the Baptist earlier in this gospel in John chapter 1 and 2, he's very popular. He had many people following and flocking to him. They wanted to hear him. They wanted to observe what he was doing. They watched him baptize many people. And John was very well known and respected by the leaders that were observing. And John took his job as a witness very seriously. He witnessed to who God was and what God was coming to do. And as I reflected on that, I asked myself, and I asked you this morning, how are you doing as a witness for Jesus Christ? What kind of witness have you been this past week? You know, I pray for those of you here this morning that live with unbelievers. You're married to an unbeliever. I pray that you are a good witness of who Jesus is and what he's done in your life. I pray that you speak with boldness and graciousness and love to your unbelieving spouse. 
I pray that your, your, your spouse would see the difference in your life compared to theirs, compared to the world. I also pray for you that have kids in your home. Until they repent, your children are unbelievers. I once mentioned to an unbelieving family member when we were visiting family in Michigan and referenced one of my kids and I called him my little black-hearted child. They didn't appreciate that reference. Appalled that I would even say this. It's true. Until they repent, they're an unbeliever. And they need the witness of mom and dad. Kids are, your kids are not born to a family as Christians. So we need to be a witness to them. Are you quick to forgive? Are you quick to give grace, to share hope of the gospel with your kids? How is your witness to the truth of the gospel for you kids? I want to encourage you this week to, to not let this whole week go by without sharing the gospel with them, giving them hope, being a witness of who God is and what he's done in your life to your kids. Keep pressing on, moms and dads. Keep being willing to repent to your kids when you've blown it. Point them to the gospel. Point them to God. So John the Baptist, he's not only a witness to who Jesus was, there's also God the Father in verse 36. He says, but the testimony that I have is greater than of John. For the works of the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I'm doing. Bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. You know, he says the Father's witness is greater than John. And God the Father has given the works for Jesus to accomplish, namely these, these miracles, these signs. You know, in the Gospel of John, there's, there's seven signs that are brought out in his Gospel. We've already covered three of them up to this point. The third one is here right in the beginning of chapter five. And, and Jesus is displaying power again and again. Pastor Ryan mentioned this a few weeks ago. These signs, they're to point people to God. He's just, he's just done this. He's just healed a man by his word as a sign of the power and the authority that he has. And yet his greatest work is yet to come when Jesus will pay the highest price. He will pay with his own life. He will take our sins upon himself and he'll be nailed to a tree to take away the penalty of our sins. This is why he has come and the leaders don't believe. Jesus continues in verse 37. He says, And the Father who sent me has, borne, has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. This is an incredibly strong indictment against these, these leaders. They would know the scriptures. They would read the passage in Daniel. They would understand that the Messiah is coming. They would read and study the Old Testament and see that the rescuer is coming. But when the rubber met the road and Jesus stood right before them, they did not believe. Folks, they studied and studied and studied and then failed the test. The leaders missed the message. Why striving and, and working so hard to know the scriptures. And they, you know, they thought that the mere possession and study of scripture was to bring life for them. Purpose. Instead, Jesus is saying, I, I give life. God gives life. For them, it was the practice 
not what, not what God could do through the study and understanding. They were going through the motions. They were, they were doing it to satisfy their longing to be recognized for their position. Donald Gray Barnhouse provides a helpful illustration about the right attitude toward the Bible. He imagines a person standing before a window high in a skyscraper overlooking the ocean. And what would we say if the person talked only about the window itself, its dimensions, the kind of material in it, its construction? Would we marvel that he had make no mention of the ocean view? Likewise, we must, we must not study the scriptures as if the Bible itself were our focus. We study the Bible to learn about God, to understand him. The, the, this book is not just about facts, although there are many inside. It's, this book is not just about stories, although there's lots of those. This book is about God. You learn about who God is and what he's come to do and what he's yet to do in the future. So we need to read it and study it and obey what it says because we know God through the study of his word. So Jesus now, he turns the table of this trial and points all the focus right squarely with the Jewish leaders. And they're on trial, verses 41 through the end of the chapter. He says in 41, I do not receive glory from people. I do not receive praise. Jesus doesn't need the praise of man to complete himself. 42, but he says, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. You know, the Jews had made a profession of loving God, but they didn't really love him at all. Jesus says, I know, I have known that you do not have the love of God with you. And this is always the case of self-willed, man-made religion. For them, it's, it's, it's not for God, it's for themselves. The Jews had developed a system of religion that they, they then tried to fit God into. But ultimately, this whole religion was about themselves. And they built it in such a way as to protect themselves. Jesus continues in 43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? And Jesus comes back to this issue of glory. He's going to cover it a lot here as we continue in through the Gospel of John. And he, he swiftly and accurately diagnoses the human issue regarding the obsession with glory. We, we love glory. We love praise. We live for it. We really want to hear that attaboy when we do something well. And our gospel writer, John, here, he writes more about this issue of glory. Turn to John chapter 12, just a few pages over. This comes back to the surface in John chapter 12. And, and in this chapter in particular, John is giving us a window into how the, the human hard wiring of, of glory seeking works. After Jesus arrives for the final time in Jerusalem, the scene quickly unfolds, is, is very pivotal to the drama of redemption, which is about to happen. Jesus is the center of attention. He's the center of everyone's attention. And in the middle of it all, Jesus prays. Verse 27, look at that. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And get this, a voice came from heaven. 
I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Verse 29, the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. A voice from heaven. They're standing there exchanging words with Jesus. Then a voice comes from heaven. When was the last time your prayers were answered with a voice from heaven? You know, one would expect that this moment would etch in their memories forever and would permanently turn all these bystanders into faith in Christ and followers, right? We would expect that to happen, but that's not what happens. John goes on to tell us something shocking. Look at verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Surprised to hear that people could be with him, to hear God speak from heaven and still not believe. Well, guess what? It gets worse. There were others who did believe in Jesus, yet still wouldn't follow. Look at verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. So let's track this here, okay? They've listened, they've observed, they've heard it, they believe in him, but they wouldn't say it publicly. Why? What was so important that they could look straight at the Son of God and then turn away? Well, John says it's for the fear of the Pharisees. After all, these these so-called believers were authorities in the Jewish community, which, which meant that their jobs and reputations were tied to the synagogue life. And the Pharisees could put them out of the synagogue. So to be bounced from the synagogue meant you could kiss your position and all of your income goodbye. And so it's, it's serious. And so we, before we judge them too severely, think about this. Think about whether your conversion carried any fear of retaliation. You know, my decision to follow Jesus Christ was a response to the gospel preached to my church, but there was no one standing outside to stone me when I walked out. I didn't get kicked out of my house. My mom actually sat and and shared with me the gospel. I didn't have any hostility at home. I wasn't going to be expelled from my neighborhood, although I could have been expelled from school many times. (laughs) His people felt fear from the Jewish authorities. Fear that they would lose everything. But here's what what gets me. Because in the very next sentence, God restrains our instinctive sympathy for these guys by by really flipping on the light of what's happening in their heart. Why the hypocrisy? Was it something they feared? Yes, at first glance, it seems this way. But deep inside, it was really something they loved. Look at verse 43. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Glory. Praise. They craved it. They were addicted to it. Their their drive was so powerful, it diverted them from the very Son of God right before them. And John is offering us amazing insight in the way we tick because we love glory. You know, we were actually created for it. 
to look for it, to love it, and to find it. You know, and a lot of glory is being promised and delivered in this section of scripture. The idea of glory occurs at least seven times in John chapter 12. It also remains as a significant theme throughout the rest of the gospel of John's. And John wants us to understand that everyone in this scene, including Jesus himself, is pursuing something, and that something is glory. But the point of it all is that we should not be seeking our own glory. We should not be seeking our own praise. We should be seeking God's glory. And that circles back all the way back to John chapter 5. Verse 44, he says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? These men will not, they cannot believe if they're enslaved to the craving to receive glory from one another. And Jesus ends this indictment using their own against them. Verse 45, he says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you did not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? If these men had really paid attention to Moses and all of his writings, they would have been convicted by Christ in this moment and of their sin, and they would have been eager to recognize his Savior who was standing right before him. It was all a show. It was an act. So as we see this morning in John's fifth chapter, Jesus presents himself as God in the flesh. He did it then to the Jewish authorities, and he does it today for those of you seated here. It was true for them, and it's true for us. And folks, what what ultimately matters is simply this question. What do you make of Jesus Christ? What do you make of Jesus Christ? This is the ultimate issue in life and death. Do you dismiss him in pride thinking you can manage on your own? Do you turn away and avoid the truth? Do you hold him off in willful disbelief, ignoring the evidence that was presented here this morning in John's gospel? Or will you bow the knee to Christ, acknowledging the truth of who he is and why he has come? I want to talk to those this morning that are here and considering Christ for salvation, or maybe never have considered Christ. It always starts with Jesus. You may have come here this morning with doubts and questions on great things but the decisive issue that will trail you for the rest of your days is this. What will you do with Jesus Christ? Nothing at all in your life will be restored if you ignore Jesus. Nothing in your life will be resolved if you turn away from him. He says, if you come believing in him, he promises eternal life. Jesus says in verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he's passed from death to life. So to turn your back on Jesus is to turn your back on life. And I 
plea to you this morning to turn, to repent, to trust in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for this passage of scripture, although very sobering and challenging and convicting. I thank you for working through it with us. Father, I ask that your words would sink deep into the hearts of those that are here this morning. I pray for those here this morning, God, that do not know you, do not have a relationship with you. I pray that they will see the testimony, the witnesses here in John's gospel in the chapter here that we looked at. That they would turn from themselves and turn to him, repent and believe. And that promise that we have, the promise that you give, that you give life, instantaneous eternal life. Father, help us never to grow to grow to a point that we just pass by that or don't think that's important or God, it's so significant. Help us to rejoice in it. Help us as believers, as Christians here this morning to go out and to preach this gospel. That as we leave and are dismissed, that we're sent out. That we are witnesses of you, witnesses of what you've done in our life. Help us to be bold. Help us to be gracious and loving. Help us to warn people, knowing that you do the work of conviction. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.